and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Ira Sheskin is a professor at the University of Miami and the editor of the American Jewish Yearbook. He is widely known for his work on the geography and demography of the American Jewish community. He has authored over 50 studies of Jewish communities across the United States. Earlier this year, after the excerpt of an article for the yearbook opened a conversation about Jews of color, he called for an accurate count and a heightened awareness that not all Jews are of Eastern European Ashkenazi origin. Well, guess what? Not all Jews are Democrats either, nor are they all Republicans. And Ira is here with us now to break down what we know about the Jewish vote in this week's presidential election. Before we begin, I should remind our listeners, AJC is a nonpartisan 501c3 not-for-profit entity that neither endorses nor opposes candidates for elective office. Ira, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Let's start with what we think we knew going into this election. AJC did its own survey of American Jewish opinion before the election and found that 75% of American Jews plan to vote for former Vice President Joe Biden, 22% plan to vote for President Trump. Did those numbers turn out to be accurate? Well, it's it's probably too early to to know at this point, okay? Uh, There's two ways that we know how people voted. One is generally something like a telephone survey, which is the type of survey that AJC does through SSRS. And the other is a a survey at the polls. Now, surveys at the polls turn out to be not all that accurate with Jews. And here's the reason for that. You go to a typical precinct and maybe 2% of the voters are going to be Jewish. So how do you get enough Jewish respondents in a short period of time? Well, you send them to a very Jewish area, right? In Florida, for example, we have an area called Aventura. And probably a a very high percentage of the people leaving the polling places in Aventura are going to be Jewish. And then you ask them who they voted for. Well, it so happens in this case that, first of all, you're looking at people. My background is a geographer, and you'll see that here. You're looking at people who chose to live in a dense Jewish community. They are by definition different by age, et cetera, from those people who chose to live in a more mixed, ethnically mixed suburb. Secondly, particularly in Miami, Aventura has a much higher percentage of Russian-speaking Jews, a much higher percentage of Hispanic Jews, and a much higher percentage of Orthodox Jews, all of whom vote differently than the rest of Jews. In fact, the Hispanics and the Russians do vote a little bit more Republican, but not by that much. It's really uh, the Israelis do it a little more Republican as well, and the Orthodox do a lot more Republican, although we should vary that in just a minute. So the point is that when they do these exit polls, they're not getting a random sample of Jews. So they're always going to overestimate the vote for the Republican is the problem with the exit polls. Now, the orthodox percentage also needs a little bit of variation here. What tends to happen there, we had a survey that came out by Nishma Research uh, about a month ago. And what it showed is that the 
modern Orthodox were a little bit more likely to vote Republican than conservative Jews and reformed Jews and what I call the just Jewish, the secular Jews. It was really the ultra-Orthodox, the Hasidic Jews, right, what they now call yeshivish Jews, who are more likely to vote Republican. So that among the ultra-Orthodox, two-thirds were voting Republican, and among the modern Orthodox, it was one-third. The way in which Orthodox Jews vote is actually not terribly relevant in this country, and I'll tell you why. Okay? First, about 42% of Jews are really disenfranchised from the national election. What do I mean by that? They live in New York or they live in, in California. New York and California, regardless of how Jews vote, are going for the Democrats. Here in Florida, our vote is generally worth a lot more. That's a different thing. Now, if you look at Orthodox Jews, I'm willing to bet that more than 50% of Orthodox Jews live in New York or California. And if you tell anything about ultra-Orthodox, I bet you it approaches about 75%. So how Orthodox are voting really doesn't impact the election in any great number. And nationally, Orthodox Jews are 10% of the American Jewish population. In Florida, outside of Miami-Dade County, which has about a fifth of the Floridian voters, Orthodox Jews are 2 to 3% of the population. So Orthodox Jews have little to no impact and don't vote all that much differently because most of the Orthodox Jews in Florida are modern Orthodox. So let me go back to a couple of points you've made. You talked about the exit polls. I'm just curious how accurate the exit polls were, especially this year when, what, 100 million people uh, in the country voted early? Um, I mean, the people who went to the polls on Election Day were of a particular persuasion already, right? Or maybe that's not a good assumption, but <laughs> I will make it nonetheless. Yeah, no, it is, it is a good assumption. Look at the way the vote's coming out. The male votes all over are different than the in-person votes. You know, I asked that question recently of someone who does exit polls, and they say, oh, we've taken that into account. Now, as, as someone who in his lifetime is, you know, taught beginning and advanced statistics. And I might add, one of the nation's top 50 universities. I'm kind of <laughs> proud of that, okay? Good little plug there. Right. I can tell you, I don't know how they took it into account. The fact that the people who voted, you know, uh, in uh, lives, right, did a live vote, and how they took into account that the male votes would be different. I don't know that yet. This is the first time that male votes have been any significant number that would impact uh, exit polls. So, so that's a good question. And I'm not, they say they took it into account. I'm not sure yet what they did. And then you, you talked about Aventura. The, the, the Republican Jewish coalition uh, said, according to their exit polls, 41% of Jews voted for Trump. That is the highest percentage of Jewish voters for Republican candidates since 1988. Could that be right? No, it's absolutely wrong. And in fact, there was another poll that came out now that's just ridiculous. Okay. No. Jews, no more than, except in, in, in a couple of years, uh, Eisenhower, Reagan, no more than about 35 to 40% of Jews have ever voted for a Republican. All the pre-election polls now were coming out like, you know, 70, about 75, 25. Some of them were 77, 21. Okay. Uh, so that, that's just not believable. I, I don't tend to believe polls that were done for an advocacy 
organization. You know, a, a poll came out uh, last week of Jewish voters in, in Florida, and I actually called the researcher and I said, tell me what methodology you used, because he did it for J Street. Now, J Street's fine with me, okay, et cetera, but it's an advocacy organization. They have a particular point of view. And he described the methodology, and I said, you know what, I, I can use your poll. Okay, what you've done is 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 just fine, and it's a company that I, I trust. Now, the Republican Jew- Jewish Coalition says what they believe, okay, they want people to hear, I think. Well, have you have you asked about the methodology of their poll? I mean, I, I should also add AJC is an advocacy organization, and um, you know we we do use SSRS and and take great pains uh, to to do to do our methodology correctly and scientifically. Have we checked? Have you checked on the coalitions? No, I haven't. I haven't seen. I haven't seen it yet. Remember, the election it really isn't over yet. This is election week, isn't it? Not election day. Okay, so no, I, I I haven't checked on that, but they're. You know, they have been saying, for example, for decades that Jews are becoming more conservative and Jews have been becoming more Republican. And it just ain't so. I mean, the data that we have uh, and, and, the, it, and it, which includes the 2000 National Jewish Population Survey, the Pew 2013 Survey of American Jews, and the recent SSRS polls okay, uh, suggest that, in fact, if anything, the percentage of Jews who call themselves conservative or call themselves Republican, it's within the margin of error, but it's down a little bit, not up. Or could it be because there has been an increase in orthodox? Well, you see, that's the other thing. The answer to that is no. Yeah, really, you know, when you look at the percentage of American Jews who are Orthodox, going back as far as 1971, we have national surveys in 1971, 1990, 2000, uh, and uh, 2013, and then the recent AJC polls. Orthodox Jews are 8 to 10% of the American Jewish population. That percentage hasn't changed. The number may have gone up, but the percentage hasn't. If the percentage remains the same, it really doesn't affect what percentage of Jews are going to be Republican. Participation in Orthodox institutions, due to a large extent to Chabad, is up all over the country. In a a survey we did here in Miami, (laughs) one out of four Jewish households in Miami participated in something run by Chabad in the past year. And among those under the age of 35, it goes up to almost half. So Orthodox is out there and it's important, but not so important in terms of the Jewish vote, as it turns out. You talked about the Jewish vote not being critical in places like uh, New York or California. But what about in Florida? I mean, there's a lot has been said about Florida suddenly becoming red how much of a role did the Jewish vote play in Trump's victory there? To give you some numbers first, okay, we've got 725,000 Jews in the, in the state of Florida, okay? Now, that 725,000 include about 70,000 who are only here from three to seven months of the year. Mm. Now, some of those 70,000 are registered to vote here, and some aren't, okay? 
in addition to that 70,000, there's about 650,000 or so who are here all year round. There are about 500,000 potential Jewish voters in Florida, let's say, which removes some of the children, which removes all the children and some of the people who are here part year. 95% of them are registered to vote. We've done surveys in a number of Jewish communities down here that indicate that. So there were, are about 11 million votes so far for the president. Mm-hmm. 500,000 is not an inconsiderable number. Mm-hmm. And it is a number that could make a difference in a close election. Of course, we're doing this interview at a time before we know uh, what the outcome is. We're still waiting on several swing states. So I ask you, could the Jewish vote sway or make a difference in any of these swing states that we're waiting on? If they're close enough, yes. I mean, as we speak, Nevada, for example, okay, right? It, there's 7,000 votes separating, and it's from the Las Vegas area, right? And Las Vegas probably by now has about 70,000, 80,000 Jews. So could they make a difference there? Yeah, okay. Um, but but in, in other years, probably not. It's just when you get an election in any state, even with 40,000, 50,000 Jews, that's going to be won by 120,000 votes, Jews can, can make a difference. But that will never be the case in New York or California. Well, this has all been very helpful insight. Thank you so much, Ira. Any other thoughts or observations that you've had as the votes continue to be tallied? Well, one kind of interesting thing is that, you know, if you go back 50 years ago, close to half of American Jews lived in New York State. That's now down to about 25 percent. And fortunately for American Jews, a good portion moved to Florida where their vote can make a difference. Okay, (laughs) okay. I mean, nobody nobody knew that when they moved here. They moved here for the climate. Not so their vote could make a difference. Okay? <laughs> and, and I suppose another thing is, is you know, the Electoral College. Um, I would vote to get rid of it yesterday. OK, but the reality is, while it disenfranchises Jews in New York and California, it really means that Jews in Florida can have an impact. Okay? So it's kind of a mixed bag for Jews as Jews in terms of how they vote. So you're basically saying that the way Jews have spread out across the country, the diaspora, if you will, across the United States has actually enfranchised Jews. Like I said, any state that's going to be close, that has any reasonable sized Jewish community, their vote can make a difference. Whereas if we continue to have half of American Jews in New York, that would be less of that. As I said, I tend to think like the, the geographer that I am. Okay. <laughs> I have several friends that are geographers, and this time of year, they love nerding out on all the maps that we're all pouring over. It is amazing. The New York Times, uh, we had a, a, one of the cartographers at the New York Times, we had as a, as a speaker about three years ago. And it turns out that the only department at the New York Times that has more employees than a decade before is the one that they call cartography and visualization. And, you know, it's hard to see too many issues in the New York Times online anyway, where there's not some map you can click on. 
And yeah, you, you turn on the TV today and right, there's that magic wall on CNN where they're touching. That's called the geographic information system, by the way, or GIS that they're using. And they're touching on stuff and information's coming up. And yeah, it's very exciting to see the extent to which maps are playing a role in that, as well as in the whole COVID-19 thing. You know, and maps didn't play a great role if you go back 20 years ago because they were so hard to make, right? The amount of time that it took to make a map and show the data. Today, the fact you can do this and then you can show that, you can show the overlaps and all that type of stuff is just wonderful. Well, perhaps we will have a fully colored map sometime before the end of 2020 and some answers too. Thank you so much for joining us, Ira. Well, it was really a, a, a pleasure being here. And no matter how the election comes out, I hope the country gets back together again and makes some progress. Amen. To debrief this week's election, AJC hosted a conversation Thursday between former Senator Norm Coleman, national chairman of the Republican Jewish Coalition, and Mark Melman, renowned political strategist, pollster, and president and CEO of the Democratic Majority for Israel. The conversation was so good, we wanted to share a clip of it here with you. I'd like to welcome Senator Coleman and Mark Melman to today's discussion. I'd like to ask both of you the same question. At this point, it, it does appear that Vice President Biden has won the presidency with a narrow electoral college margin and a more substantial popular vote lead. Meanwhile, President Trump, who said repeatedly during the campaign that the only way that he could lose the election would be by fraud, is challenging the count in several states. Uh, so this race is not yet over. Uh, but whatever the final outcome, uh, a few things are clear including the stark divisions in our country and the anger and resentment and frustration that we've seen boiling over in recent months at campaign rallies and also in our city's streets. I'd like to ask each of you to assess those divisions in our country and how each of your party's campaigns sought to respond to them in advancing a vision for America. Let me begin with you, Senator Coleman. So I actually have a much more optimistic view. Uh, we had an election in spite of the greatest pandemic that we've ever faced, and we've had more turnout than we've ever had. Americans showed up and voted. Uh, and, and in spite of the fact that all the polls and all the prognosticators all indicated that Donald J. Trump was going to get blown away, a 17-point lead he had in Washington Post poll in Wisconsin, 10-point lead across the board, this is a very close election. And one of the things that I think it reflected is one that, that and I give the president credit for this, that there is a, uh, there are a lot of Americans out there who, who feel that, that he, no one's listening to him but him, uh, that, that there's a kind of a populist sense in a positive way. And we, we as Jews get worried about populism in a negative sense. But, but you know, the, the, the average guy, the average man and woman. And by the way, the president, look at his numbers. He, he, did, he did, you know, much better than any Republican has done among blacks, among Hispanics, among gay lesbians, and then ultimately among Jews. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. New York Times, Florida poll, 43% of Florida Jews voted for Donald J. Trump. So I actually think that this election may be an opportunity to do two things in a positive way. One, I, I hope the, the woke left progressives understand that there is a part of this country that is, is kind of center right. We are divided in half politically, but recognize that those are, they're not all racist and, 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 and they're not terrible people. They're average Americans who many ways feel left behind by globalism, feel that, you know, Washington's not speaking or listening to them, listening to them. And so I think they they got up and they voted. They, they, it wasn't with arms and it wasn't unlike what you see in the left with, with you know, Seattle and Portland and, and, and anarchy, et cetera. People voted. 
Uh, and so our challenge is to kind of continue to tap in to that, that, that connection that we saw, that enthusiasm we saw for democracy in this race. I'm actually optimistic uh, as to where we stand and the opportunities. And I would hope that whoever then wins this presidential race, and it looks like you know, Senator B Vice President Biden has an easier path, is on his way. But I hope there is then a kind of a reaching out to the other side and, and to really kind of govern in a unifying fashion. But I was uplifted by this election. I was uplifted by the numbers. I was uplifted by the turnout. And I was uplifted at what I saw, uh, you know, people standing up again, a president in places where they simply didn't give him any credit uh, and, and, and responding in a way that, that gives me at least hope for a, for a better and brighter future. Uh, thank you, Senator. Mark, how does it look to you? Well, it's a great question. Um, first of all, we have to recognize that as of this moment, and not all the votes have been counted, not all the votes cast before on election day, before election day have been counted. But at this moment, more people have voted for Joe Biden than for any other presidential candidate in the history of this republic, point one. Point two, well, well, at this moment, as we speak, Joe Biden's essentially at 270 electoral votes. We still have states left to, to, to fall one way or the other. And I think when all is said and done, Biden's going to have much more than 270 electoral votes. And we've seen some changes in this election. The reality is there are a number of states that voted for narrowly for uh, Trump last time that are voting narrowly, but for uh, Joe Biden this time, whether it's those states in the upper Midwest, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, which I think will be in the Democratic column, but certainly uh, Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, Arizona. Uh, we've seen a number of states move. We may see Georgia move. So there has been movement, uh, very clear movement in a Democratic direction uh, in a number of key areas. But I, I think there has been a difference in the way these campaigns have been run. And I don't want to refight the campaign and sort of try out the campaign talking points. But I think there is a deeper point here, which is if you saw Joe Biden speak yesterday, if you saw him speak on the campaign trail, what you heard was somebody talking about bringing the country together, about healing divisions, about not engaging in divisive uh, kinds of rhetoric, in divisive kinds of actions, uh, but about, again, bringing people together about healing. Um, President Trump has really governed by division. Um, and that's been an important part of his approach. It's why a lot of Republicans abandon him. A lot of leading Republicans abandon him in this uh, in this electoral quest because they felt he was too divisive. And the reality is the vast majority of Americans do think that he is a divisive figure. So I'm very hopeful with Joe Biden as president that we will have more of a coming together. If I can add one thing, Jason, where I would challenge my Democrat friend is that Democrat whole campaign is based on divisiveness. It's about identity politics. It's are you black? Are you gay? Are you are you war? I mean, it's the entire approach has been that way. And if Joe Biden is in fact to prevail, he's going to prevail not not because of the identity politics, because he's talked about being you know Joe from Scranton and appeal to the folks in the center in a Pennsylvania, in a Michigan, in a Wisconsin, and even in a Georgia. So I would say my, my friends on the left, their entire approach has consistently been identity politics, has been dividing America. And I think in the end, this election was about a much broader center coming together and, and perhaps now electing Joe Biden, but at the same time, keeping Republican control of the Senate and, and having Republicans actually picking up uh, House of Representatives seats at a time when they were projected to lose 10 or 20, picking up five to seven, and at the same time, holding on to state legislatures. Uh, and, and so I see this election being a positive for those of us who kind of moved to the Senate, but that has not been the approach of my friends on the left. How can we build from this election, therefore, 
to to drive away these forces of polarization in both parties? Is it, is it possible to to refocus on the center in a much more determined, deliberate way, sustained way going forward? Mark, let me let you start. Well, and, and this is sort of the, if you will, the contradiction in Senator Coleman's argument, which is to say, yes, there are there are certainly some people in the Democratic Party who are focused on division. There is a president in the Republican Party who is focused on division. The president, as Senator rightly said, the person who ran for president of the Democratic banner with the Democratic nomination, the person who's going to win the presidency uh, as a Democrat, is the person in this race who is trying to bring people together um, and is working toward the center. So I think that is an important fact and an important uh, uh, leverage point for the future. How do we bring about greater unity? How do we focus more on the center? Joe Biden, I think, is committed to doing that. Um, and I think he made that clear in the campaign. That is the way he ran his campaign. That is the way he, I, I think, intends to run his administration. Uh, and that's the way he's operated in the Senate uh, for all those years. It's really how he rep- operated as the vice president, too, working with the Senate. He talked a lot about being able to make agreements across party lines. He did that when he was in the Senate. He did it as vice president. Those agreements didn't always stick that he made as vice president. He was had the, that word vice in front of his name then. Um, but now he makes the final decisions. Um, and so I think that is his nature and that is his tendency. But he is his nature and tendency is going to be challenged by real political forces that exist outside of him and outside of the wishes uh, of any individual person in the country, for that matter, that, again, is pulling the country in very opposite directions. So we'll have to see how that balances out. But at least we have a president that's committed to bringing people together rather than a president who feels his political future is secured by stoking division. And I'll just, you know, put aside that the election's not over yet. But but if we're assuming that Joe Biden comes to president, first of all, he hasn't pulled people together. We had a Democrat convention in which the streets were aflame in Minneapolis, where St. Paul, where I'm from, in, in Portland, in Seattle. Uh, and, and not a word, not a word. This is the, he's, he's the candidate, not a single word in that entire process. And it only took until I think Poland showed that American people really were concerned about this, did he in fact respond. And, you know, I go back, I go back, Jason, to, to, to Barack Obama. You know, he ran a campaign that seemed to be so unifying, no, no, no red America, white America, you know, just one America, et cetera. And in the end, this country left after his two terms in office more divided on race, more divided on 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 well on wages, rich, poor, gay, straight. I mean, I mean, he stoked in the end. He was not a unifying force. If Biden is the president, the test will be: Can he stand up to those forces on the left? And can he, in fact, move away from the identity politics? He has in the past. I give him credit for that. I serve with him. He's a good man. I disagreed on policy, but that's okay. We can disagree. We both have the same goal. We want every kid to have the opportunity to be the best they can be. But that will be the test. And you didn't see it. There was a silence about the violence. There was a silence about the division in this country until I I think almost politically forced to. So the test will be, can you turn that rhetoric that you heard at the end into reality? I hope that's so. I pray that's so. But certainly I didn't see it from Barack Obama. And yes, I didn't see it from Donald Trump. Okay, we didn't see that kind of pulling us all together. I, I, I pray because that is the hope. That in the end, when and if Trump were to be reelected, my plea to him would be, Mr. President, find a way to bring us together. If Joe Biden is in the White House, Joe, live up to your rhetoric. To watch a recording of the whole conversation, you can click the link in our show notes or head to AJC.org slash Advocacy Anywhere. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. 
And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Laura Shaw Frank, the director of AJC's Contemporary Jewish Life Department. Laura, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Hi, Sefi. This Shabbat, I want to talk to my kids about citizenship. As we sit here recording, we don't yet know who won the presidential election, and we may not know for several more days. Anxiety is running high in all corners of our nation. But I don't want to talk about who's going to win and who's going to lose at my family's Shabbat table. I want to talk about the day after. I want to talk about being committed Americans no matter who our president is. I've been thinking a lot about citizenship this week. Of course, a lot of that has to do with the election, in which Americans of all political stripes participated in unprecedented numbers. But the election isn't the only reason that citizenship is on my mind. I've also been thinking about the biblical Abraham, who in this week's Torah portion, Vayera, stands to me as a model of citizenship. Obviously, Abraham was not a citizen of a country, but he was a proverbial citizen in his relationship with God. Abraham and God are partners in a way in a project of building a more perfect world, just the way citizens and their government should work together to build a more perfect nation. There are two moments in this week's Parsha that stand out to me. The first is when God goes to Abraham to tell him to sacrifice his son Isaac. The Torah says, God put Abraham to the test. He said to him, Abraham, and he answered, Hineni, here I am. Abraham did not know what God was going to ask of him, but he was immediately ready to hear what God wanted him to do. Hineni says, I am ready. I am available. I am standing up. In the end, as we all know, Abraham does not sacrifice his son. But that moment of Hineni, here I am, God needs me and I am here, speaks volumes to me. I'm thinking about President John F. Kennedy's famous words in his inaugural address, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Fine, that line is perhaps a bit overquoted, but it is underheard. Our nation is under enormous stress right now. We're living through a terrible pandemic and economic downturn, and we're coming out of a highly divisive presidential race. To me, it's time for the citizens of the United States to take a breath and say, Hineni. We are here to roll up our sleeves and work together to help this wonderful country that we all love through this incredibly difficult time. But having a Hineni mindset doesn't mean we are here just to follow orders. At another point in this week's Torah portion, God decides to destroy the city of Sodom because the people there are wicked. Abraham cannot stomach this, and he argues with God, demanding, will you sweep away the innocent along with the guilty? And then he bargains with God. God says that if he finds 50 innocent people, he won't destroy the city. Abraham pushes back until he gets God to spare the city if a mere 10 innocent people are found. And this too is citizenship. Helping one's country also means standing up in protest and advocating with all your might when you see your government doing something you believe to be unjust. Ultimately, what I'd like to talk to my kids about this Shabbat is that good citizenship means taking responsibility. It means seeing yourself as part of something bigger, and investing yourself in the success of your country. Whatever the outcome of the election is, I hope that's a message we can all take to heart. So that's what I'm going to be talking about at my Shabbat table. What are you going to be talking about, Manya? Well, Laura, it should come as no surprise as a fellow mother that we will be talking about something quite similar at our Shabbat table. We will be talking about my two wishes this week. First, my wish that all votes will be counted and will count. The images of our fellow Americans in Michigan banging on the windows of the polling station this week chanting, Stop the Count, were absolutely heartbreaking. 
Not just heartbreaking, maddening. I probably haven't been that angry in months. And that is saying a lot after such a contentious presidential campaign when both candidates had their, hmm, let's just say, less than becoming moments. To think people who made the effort to fill out their ballots and either put it in the mail or a drop box early or risk their health to come to the polls, to think those people would not get a say in an election, a right so fundamental to our democracy, it just sent me over the edge. Now, I was so incensed. I did what every anger management coach would advise us not to do. And here is my confession. I logged on to Facebook and within five minutes, spotted a meme bashing one of the candidates on a family member's page, and I posted a corrective that probably made her equally angry. It was misinformation. I couldn't take it. I'm a stickler for accuracy. What can I say? When one of my cousins came along and gave my comment a thumbs up, it probably made her even angrier. And suddenly, I realized this is how family rifts begin. And that leads me to my second wish, that everyone, including my family and my friends, will accept the results as we do every four years and find a way to live together, celebrate together, and work together for Takun Alam, a better world and a better country. I understand that different voters have different priorities. I understand that we don't all agree. And I hope that we will learn to listen to each other with empathy and a renewed determination to help each other fix the broken system and the problems that are breaking each and every one of us. We need to let the votes be counted fairly, accurately, and completely so the man our fellow Americans chose can continue or start to do the job of leading this nation. I know deep down that's what we all want. We want democracy to work. Hey, guys, we need our democracy to work. And that is what we will be talking about at our Shabbat table. Sefi? Well, I'm, I'm not a mother, but I, I'm, I'm thematically in line with, uh, with the two of you. I've been thinking a lot about certainty. As we record this more than 36 hours after polls closed here in my home state of New York, as Laura said, as Manya spoke about, we are still uncertain who won the presidential election. Maybe it's good, actually, to introduce a little bit of uncertainty to our politics, just as long as it doesn't go on for too long. Because when it comes to politics and political issues, everyone is so certain. A big chunk of the country is certain that abortion is murder. But another big chunk is certain that restricting abortion denies women control over their own bodies. A big chunk of the country is certain that America was founded by racists, for racists, and that we have never moved beyond that discriminatory legacy. But another big chunk is certain that that is false and believes calling America racist is itself deeply offensive. A big chunk of the country is certain that the government is the best way to arrange for people to have health care, housing, and sufficient pay. But another big chunk is certain that the government would be incompetent at providing those things, or that providing those things would be socialist, or that providing those things would be tyranny. We can do this all day with climate change, with foreign policy, with guns, name just about any issue. And I can point you to two totally opposite schools of thought, each convinced of their own righteousness. It's for this reason that I have found never-Trump Republicans to be among the most interesting thinkers of the past four years. Now, let me be clear. I'm not here to endorse or oppose the political viewpoints of these conservative voices who turned on their party over its support for President Trump. But their utter lack of certainty is refreshing. 
They used to be party hacks, and then their party left them. They don't have a team to root for anymore. Political opinions become harder to form when you can't just support whatever Team Red or Team Blue support. Political certainty? That becomes impossible. For four years, they have been out in public trying to figure out what they really know. Now, I'm not proposing a total moral relativism where anything can be good or bad depending on how you look at it. Of course, we need to keep a firm hold on our basic core values. But on top of those, we would all do well, myself included, by the way, to ask more questions, to challenge our own dogmas, and to be less certain. One of the leading intellectual lights of these politically homeless conservatives put it well earlier this year. David French is an evangelical, a military veteran, and a longtime conservative public intellectual. I'll close with a few sentences from him that I think about often on this very issue. Quote, Time and again, I go back to the triple admonitions of Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. It's a verse for all time, but it also seems especially appropriate at this time. Seek justice, yes. In a polarized time, that's the easy command. That's the call to fight for what's right. The next two commands, however, come much harder, but their imperative is easier to understand when we know the truth that our virtue is often accidental. Our vices are stubborn. I can be kind to men and women who are confronting their own history and circumstance, and I must be humble. I must, even, and perhaps especially when I feel most confident. End quote. And Shabbat Shalom. An ode to uncertainty. I love it, Sefi. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.